There is a myth among indie authors that the only way to sell your book is online, and specifically through Amazon. Many indies make 100% of their money through Amazon, and this approach can work, but it gives Amazon 100% control over the money that you make as an author, and they don't know who you are. <laughs> Believe it or not, there are other places to sell books. In fact, you can even sell books directly to your readers. And in this episode, you're going to learn how you can make a living as an indie author, or many ways that you can make a living as a author. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and you are listening to Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. And yes, you can be successful as an indie author, and we have a guest on the show today who's done just that, and we're going to pick his brain and learn from his triumphs and his disasters, the lessons that he's learned making books for hundreds of thousands of readers. He's the author of the Green Ember series, a best-selling middle-grade adventure saga. The Green Ember has reached a ton of readers. It's very popular. He spent time as a number one best-selling audiobook on Audible, and his stories have captivated readers across the globe who are hungry for new stories with an old soul. S.D. Smith, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you very much, Thomas. So tell me a little bit about how you got started. You're writing your book. You're an unpublished author. Nobody knows who you are. How did you take the book to market? It's hard to tell the story without talking about a partner that I've had, and that is my brother-in-law. His name's Andrew McKay, and he always had this dream of starting a little press, and I always had the dream of being an author. And we have had this little bit of a kind of a partnership and guerrilla warfare mentality, but we started off really small. I had written some things online, like the standard sort of advice of try to be present and serve an audience and put a lot of stuff out there for free, that kind of thing, but it wasn't a huge audience by any means. So it was really pretty uh, relatively untested, certainly in the fiction world. But we started off with Kickstarter and family and friends and tried to make a really high quality video. And of course, we tried to make a really high quality book. So what kind of things did you give away for free? Mostly I was blogging. I was doing, I was blogging and we started a website called storywarren.com. And that was, it was aimed at serving parents who were looking for quality things and looking for inspiration around imagination. We call ourselves allies in imagination. So we're just looking to be allies to parents who are in the same stage of life as us, which is like you, just trying to raise kids and trying to figure out what are we supposed to give them? What are we supposed to do for them? What, what, how can we love them and help shape their imaginations in a positive way? So we had a little bit of a, a gang there. We'd done a couple of conferences, real small, but, but not completely insignificant when it came to having a little bit of an audience ready to support what we were doing. I think I, I built up some goodwill, basically, with people. And it sounds like a very sketchy kind of a thing. It was totally sincere. I mean, that's the secret to effective content marketing is find a specific audience, identify what their needs, pain points are, and then bless them, thrill them, serve them right? in a way that makes them want to come back for themselves, not because they care about you, but because your website is beneficial. So walk us through what you're blogging about. Were you like reviewing other books that were coming out or giving parenting advice? There's a lot of different ways you could take a blog like that. There, that stuff happened on our blog. I was mostly about vision stuff, about sort of identity and thinking about ourselves, who we are as parents and what we're called to do and how to bless and love these little kids and how to navigate. A lot of people feel 
fear, maybe not unrightly so, about uh, the, what their kids are being exposed to, whether that's excessive violence or whatever. So uh, there, sometimes we have a, in little niche cultures, we have like a maybe an overcorrection to that to where we're like just looking for stuff that's super, super safe. And so I feel like there's kind of ditches on both sides of the road. And we were trying to just say like, hey, there are some allies out here who can help. And, and I think we were trying to fill that need to, I don't know, give inspiration and equipping of the families. But there was certainly an element of like a little bit of reviews and that, and that sort of thing. I didn't do that as much, but but some of our partners did. So did you have an email list attached to that blog in the early days? Pretty early on, we had one. Yeah, uh, that was definitely a strategy. But but I think an important thing I'm sure that you emphasize is that it doesn't really matter how well you market anything if it's not good. Like the John Lasseter said that the, that excellence is the best business plan, and and I just think that's so powerful for marketing or whatever. Like the, the quality. I know you're focusing on the connection aspect, and authors, you know, are definitely these days we we have to create and connect. We have to create excellent content and connect it with our audience, and I think they're both really important. But if the, if you don't get the creation side right, it doesn't matter. And actually, you shouldn't be good at the other part because you're hurting people. It's not good for the world. I tried to do that with the writing for sure and did, did my best, but we tried to do that with the art, with the quality of the book, with the video that we made for the first Kickstarter. We poured into that. I know it's a cliche to make a good cover and all that, but that, I just feel like that is so profoundly valuable to be excellent in every stage of the way. But I feel like that's the best marketing you can do. There's an old saying that uh, good marketing helps bad books fail faster. <laughs> you can't fix a bad book with good marketing. So that really is the first thing you've got to get. And good isn't that you think it's good. It doesn't mean that your editor thinks it's good. It means that your readers think it's good, that it scratches the itch that the readers have, which means that you have to be really close to your reader and what they want. And why I think that blogging was really beneficial because that's a two-way street. You're writing a blog post, you're getting comments back, you're interacting with readers, you're sensing that pain point, and you're also casting a really clear vision of, and I don't want it to be too crazy on this one side, but I also don't want it to be so tame that it's boring and really defining that middle road so that you do have an audience because you brought your own crowd to Kickstarter. It's not like people on Kickstarter were like, oh, look, bunnies, I, I want to give you money. <laughs> right? But your initial Kickstarter, I, I looked it up, you had fi over 500 backers, you raised over $20,000. You don't do that if you're not bringing your own audience to Kickstarter to help things kick off. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Seth Godin said that it should be called Kick Finisher, not Kickstarter. <laughs> so many people think I'll do something and I'll throw it up there and then it'll work. And that's just, that's nonsense. It's much closer to the end of the process than it is at the beginning. And a lot of what we do is about equipping the people who want to help us be able to share it and to be proud to share it. So you make a high quality video so that not only does the person who's been reading it for a little while or your aunt or your mom or whatever want to support you, but they also are proud to say, hey, check this out. This is awesome. It's not just about your audience that you already have, but it's about um, equipping the people that you already have. And, and, and that, certainly in our story, nothing's even close. That is our, has been our sales force, has been word of mouth. It's been other people telling their friends about the books because they, they've done a far more effective job marketing. So our, our basic approach is try to equip them well and try to remove obstacles. That's right. And, and regarding Kick Finisher, it also, Kickstarter is not a good place to make your first money because you need to already have paid for the cover. <laughs> so like you can't really go. And I've seen authors do this and I'm like, man, you're really making life hard for yourself where they'll go on Kickstarter 
and say, help me raise money for the cover for my book. And so they're asking people to picture the book in their head with words or they're putting covers of other books. That is a big jump. It's really hard for people to get there. Get a job, work a part-time job, do, drive some Uber, get some money so you at least can afford the cover. You don't have to afford the editing. You can pay for editing with money from Kickstarter. And there's a lot of things you can pay for with money from Kickstarter. But the cover, you really need to have that cover so you can put it on Kickstarter. And then making a video is really key. Just some people are like, oh, but Kickstarter doesn't require a video. No, it doesn't. But you're going to raise way less money <laughs> if you don't put a video They're an honest video kind of sharing not just what you're making and why you need help making it, but why the thing that you're making needs to exist, connecting it with a cause. And I think that's one of the things that's helped your books be successful is that they're connected with a cause. They're not just a fun book to read, but they're a fun book that teaches something of substance, that communicates something of substance that parents are wanting to deliver to their children. Yeah, I think that's true. The books certainly aren't didactic. They're not allegorical or anything like that, but... They do resonate deeply with the audience, and I think the audience has taken to heart the core of the story, the heart of the story, the spirit of the story, and they they believe it so deeply that they are excited to share, and they become these really enthusiastic ambassadors for for the story in a way that I absolutely never could. This isn't just my self-expression, and I'm fond of saying that self-expression is not the end of art, it's barely the beginning. And, and I think that's so true. It's not, you know, there are places for self-expression, a journal or that kind of thing, but that's not, you're not entitled to an audience because of self-expression. And I think that's a backwards view of the vocation of an artist. And it's about fame and celebrity and money and power. When I think, particularly as a Christian, I feel like my calling is to love and serve my audience and, and to give them a gift. So if I'm an effective marketer for something that's a lie, that's like a failure for me. I've got to first of all, be honest and be generous. And I think of my work as as a work of hospitality, a work of generosity that I'm trying to love and serve them. If they're not being loved and served by what I'm doing, then I'm, I feel like I'm not doing the right things. You know, it's very much in line with the novel marketing method. Our first commandment of novel marketing, the 10 commandments of novel marketing is love your reader as much as you love your book. <laughs> so that's really key, which means listening to your reader and writing a book that your reader already wants to read and not being like, I'm going to change people into the kind of people who like my book. That's not marketing. That's impossible. <laughs> I have a hard time changing myself. I have not been successful in changing anyone else. So back to your story. You spend this time building this audience, building trust, casting a vision. Then you say, OK, help me make the vision happen. You put it on Kickstarter. 500 people raised $20,000. What did you do after that? We were so scared at the beginning that we would, you know, we were trying to think, how could we break even? And we, what we really did is we invested in ourselves. We invested in inventory. So we didn't make any money for a while. We invested in the future success of the book. We ordered those books before we did the Kickstarter. So we were ready to go. The Kickstarter was really a pre-sale for what we were doing. And we just hoped that over word of mouth, maybe 18 months later, we could sell all this print run, which was 1,500 books. And we were thinking if we could just do that and... 18 months, maybe we would break even. And the $800 loan I gave to our business, which felt to me like $7 trillion at the time, I thought, well, maybe we can make it back. And we didn't take home a lot, a lot of money. We were investing it back in the business. And so this is the old school way of indie publishing, where you weren't doing Amazon print on demand or Ingram Spark print on demand. 1,500 copies is the minimum print run for an offset 
print run. So they're making the plates and they're running it through the high volume printers, the same as if they'd have been printing 30,000 copies, which means that you had to spend a not insignificant lump of money. I'm guessing a good chunk of that $20,000 just went to cover that print run, depending on how many pages and when you ordered it. Paper's gotten a lot more expensive in the last few months, so the math gets tricky. But that's a very expensive way to do it up front. And I don't recommend offset printing for most people unless they do the Kickstarter. (laughs) Because with the Kickstarter, you can know, oh, we know for sure we sold 500 copies. We'll probably be able to sell another 1,000 copies with the launch and the promotion. And so it takes the risk out of it. Because what happens with a lot of authors is that they publish before they're ready or they publish before they really know their market and how to reach it. And if they print 1,500 copies, they end up with most of those copies in their garage and they never move out of the garage. So it's a very risky method. But the advantage of it is that your cost per book is lower, which means that when you sell it, you sell it at a higher margin. So you've got these 1,500 copies, you ship out the initial 500 or 600 to the backers. So what do you do with those next thousand copies? How do you get those to sell? We did a couple of conferences. We went to a conference for classical schools, and we set up a little uh, table by the bathroom, which was very exotic. We're meeting people, and and we met one person there who was very enthusiastic about the story. And she said, hey, you guys homeschool, right? And we're like, yeah, we homeschool. She's like, you should go to this homeschool conference. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't know what it was. And so she said, yeah, you should go. It'd be great. And so we did. So by the time we got there, we already had quite a bit of momentum going. Like there was, there were a lot of people, I think in that crowd, which I shouldn't have underestimated, but that crowd is, there are people who like to read a lot. And there are kids who just really love to read. And, and I think our, my particular brand, which was this sort of new stories with an old soul, in that the stories have a sort of a classic feel to them. They feel old fashioned in, in some good ways, but they also have this sort of modern pacing that kind of thing. So I think that they were attractive to people that homeschool, and I think they're attractive to a lot of people in that crowd. So that's what led us to go to our first homeschool conference, and and we had a really good experience there and a lot of enthusiasm. And I think that that was an accelerator for our connection to our audience. Because I feel like the homeschool community has become the Praetorian guard of your fandom, right? Because now you sold hundreds of thousands of copies, and you're bigger than just homeschoolers. It's not that only homeschoolers read your book. But I feel like of your early uh, fans, the homeschoolers made up a big chunk of that. And since they're such avid readers and since they talk about the books that they read, you know, once you become popular with the homeschool moms, word spreads really quickly because they talk about books a lot. They do. You're right. And that's still definitely the case. I think as a sort of a Christian and even in the homeschool movement broadly and then in the, like, the classical sort of wing of that movement, those people are very excited about books. I feel very flattered that audiences embraced these books because they a lot of times they don't embrace modern books very much. They're looking for classics. They love the older books. So I wasn't looking at that as like a possibility. I wasn't really thinking about it. Now, looking back, it seems like a no-brainer, but I really was not clued into that really at all. But that was certainly true of us. For people who are not familiar with the homeschool community, this community spends millions and millions of dollars on books. There are, depending on whose numbers you hear, between three and six million homeschool students just in the United States. And those homeschool students probably are buying, I don't know, 10 books a year, 30 books a year. Some of them, it's more like 50 books a year. (laughs) Some homeschool kids, they buy books a lot and they're also requesting that their library buy books 
on their behalf. And it's like, how do you know your homeschools? Like when your librarian puts a limit on how many books you can check out a week, <laughs> it's kind of a joke between homeschoolers, but they're the ones who know the name of their librarian and know how to get the system to, to order them a book. And so it was like, how do you get into public libraries? Well, if you're popular with homeschoolers, they will do the work. They'll do the heavy lifting to get you into the public libraries because they're very big users of that system. And now it's not for everyone, right? The homeschoolers are very particular about the kind of books that they like. So you have a middle grade book, a big part of marketing middle grade books for a lot of middle grade authors is getting into public schools and getting into middle schools. Have you tried that? Have you dabbled? What's that been like? So there are public school kids who read the books. I know that, but I have not done what a lot of people do, which is just aggressively focus on trying to get into schools and that that kind of thing. I, I just, that's not been a part of the Honestly, we, we, what, what's happened has been so it's taken so much time that we've been reactionary more than we haven't been proactive in a lot of areas because we've been forced to really focus on what we have to have to do. And so like even for the libraries, like we weren't in the library system, like you couldn't just let like most librarians across the country couldn't just go and, hey, I'll pick the green ember. They had to do something extraordinary. They had to go out of their way to like go to our website. It was the only place you could get it. And honestly, even right now, the books are still not easy to get everywhere. It's challenging, which I think is good in some ways, but it can be challenging in others. And, and I think the public school system is sort of one of those areas where we just, we haven't focused a lot of effort or attention. And this is a result of not going the print on demand route. It's really easy to add your book to Ingram Spark and Amazon KDP print has access to a lot of those distribution channels. And so you think, well, surely that would be the better strategy, right? Because you get this easy access to these distribution channels. But the way that you're doing it, you're printing the books offset and you're shipping the books. You have your own store and you're selling enough where that makes sense. It doesn't make sense if you're only selling one or two copies a month, but it makes sense if you're selling hundreds of copies a month or thousands of copies a month. And when you do it that way, when you have that strong, direct connection with your readers, the margins are way better because Amazon takes a 70% cut. And that's a lot. Whereas when you're running your own store, you're making both your royalty, which all authors make, but you're also making the publisher's commission as an independent author, but you're also making the retailer's commission. So you end up getting to keep most of the money, which allows you to feed your family on fewer readers because you're getting a bigger piece of that pie. And This is a a totally valid strategy, and I've noticed it's a very common strategy amongst authors who are selling in the homeschool market. They're going basically completely around all the traditional venues. In fact, I was listening to an interview just yesterday of a homeschool author who didn't even bother putting his book on Amazon. He's like, they'll probably kick us off anyway. They don't agree with our politics. We don't think Amazon will have our book. And I'm listening to it, and I'm like, that may or may not be true. I haven't read his book, and if Amazon would like it, but I do know him sending people to his website to buy the book makes him a lot more money per book. (laughs) So there's a real strategy there. And there's a lot of authors making a living with this method, writing speculative fiction. In fact, I would say the most successful authors financially in the Christian market are the ones who are walking the path that you're walking of basically going around the bestseller lists, going around Amazon, going around Ingram and just going straight to the readers. 
Yeah, yeah. Basically, most people don't know that we exist. In the New York publishing world, we're totally absent. They have no idea what's going on with us. We're not in the Christian publishing world either. We're not tied to that sort of business thing. They don't really know we exist too much either. That's not our world. We're not in the political world either. So we're not in any of those niches, really, except for maybe the homeschooling one, I guess. But we're totally independent. And exactly like you said, we've always been on Amazon from the beginning, and that's been good. And for us, KDP's been good and Audible's been good, less and less good over time. They've, but not only they can kick you off because of politics, which, you know, that can happen for sure, but it's also it can just change their terms anytime. We've got the biggest store in the world. Now, you know, we're taking 45%. We're going to take 70%. We're going to take 80% now. We're going to change that. So we have... Even just as a sort of a just trying to be smart business people, we've done exactly what you said. We've tried to move as many people as possible from our sales on Amazon and stop playing the game of see how high we can go on Amazon or that kind of thing. We've more just shifted that to our store. And the POD thing is tough because those margins are just horrible, it seems like. So that's a tough one. I, I get why people do that, you know, maybe as you're starting out, but... But this has been a good strategy for us because, yeah, the margins are really, really good. And also there's a direct connection. So I, I'm to me, if I'm talking to a young author, it's always like, yeah, do your own website, have your own newsletter. And to me, as soon as you can, have your own store, a direct relationship that doesn't involve other gatekeepers so that Mark Zuckerberg can't say, hey, now I've decided that you can't. When we did our third Kickstarter, I can't remember the date, but that was like right when Facebook changed everything and basically like business pages, nobody could see them. Like you were just, we were getting 100,000 easy organic sort of views on stuff. And then like the next day it was like 300 or 200 and we had just launched a Kickstarter and we were trying to be ambitious there and it was like killed us. And, and so we've always tried to get away from like Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos or somebody else just being able to, on a whim to say, well, we're going to change the rules. And they can because it's their house. I'm not mad at them. I mean, it was a little bit mad, but it was also it's like they can do what they want because it's their business. And whether it's a good business or not, that's all for debate. But yeah, like right now, my new book, it's the 10th Green Ember book, and it's not available on Amazon yet. But my closest fans, my newsletter subscribers and others have been able to get signed copies from me for the last you know month or so. So we've been doing that with the last several books, trying to have a unique launch. But we're still going to be on Amazon. You're going to get there. We're going to reach those people who are just like, I'm only going to buy at Amazon. When I hear about it. I'm going to look at Amazon. We still sell really well on Amazon. But but yeah, we're moving more and more people just to that direct relationship is so key. It's the Hollywood strategy. When a movie first comes out, you can only see it in the theater. You're going to have to pay $10 for a ticket. And then after 45 days... You can rent it. And then after 180 days, it's free on one of the streaming platforms. And so they are able to get the most money out of the biggest fans, but also reach the most people because people are like, oh, yeah, I guess I need something to watch. This is free. They'll go ahead and watch it. And maybe they'll enjoy it so much they'll become a big fan so that when the next movie comes out, they want to go see it in the theater. So it's a really similar staged strategy to that. And what I need people to hear is that you are being successful at doing this. You're selling hundreds of thousands of, of copies. I don't know if you're willing to share kind of ballpark total, not in dollars, but just in units. How many copies would you say you sold since you started? I know that we're over a million on all formats, but we've done really well in audiobooks, that kind of thing. But it's been a great experience. Your analogy with films is perfect, but we're not charging extra. Like we can actually give the best prices. And that's what we try to do. Like even with our Kickstarters, we were like, I know a lot of people do Kickstarters and they're like, well, I'll do $35 for a paperback. We've never done that. We've always tried to 
say, like, if you are with us, if you are sort of our core, core people, you're going to get the best deals, the first access, the best deals, the sign books, like, because, going back to what we talked about to begin with, because it's about love and service for us. It's not just about, like, they are definitely doing us a favor by buying the book. We never want to feel like it's an unequal exchange. Like, we want them to be getting good quality. And because, honestly, these books were originally written for my kids. So every time a kid reads these, whether that's on, in Africa or South America or, or here in West Virginia, like I want them to have an experience of delight. I want to serve them. I want to give them a gift. So it's got to work. I'm not trying to artificially make it more difficult or exploit them. And I think that's a smart business plan too, actually, long term. And your business model enables that. Because you're selling directly and because you're offset printing, the fact that you're not having to share a big chunk of the money with Amazon allows you to be able to give that discount while still covering the bills because you're basically sharing the not going through Amazon discount with your readers, which I think is a really strong strategy. It's a really great way to bless them and also thank them for going through the extra hassle, right? Because it's one click to check out with Amazon and it's more than one click to check out with you because Amazon has a patent on one click checkout. <laughs> and that builds that really strong relationship. When they check out through your cart, you have their email address, which means when the next book comes out, it's very easy to be, hey, here's the book. You sign up by such and such time to get the signed copy. The price is lower now than it will be on Amazon later. And it, it creates that urgency in a really real and authentic way. And I love that you're doing that with your Kickstarter as well. So your most recent Kickstarter brought in 81,000, looks like you had just under 2,000 backers. Uh, so you're still mostly selling through your store. 2,000 is not a lot of backers, but they're donating a lot of money to help make that goal happen. Yeah, that was many years ago too. So that's been a that's been a while. We haven't done Kickstarter for the last several books. And that's the one where we were just like fighting tooth and claw to get in front of people because we had, had this whole strategy built on <laughs> reaching people through the, through Facebook, which was just easy, so easy. And then it became like impossible overnight. So we, we fought to get that, even that little amount. So it's certainly grown a lot since then. And now we've just taken Kickstarter out of the mix and like, well, we'll just do this ourselves. Because as you said, Kickstarter is not a great discovery and then they take a percentage as well. So we started just going completely direct. Like at times it's tempting. You look at some something like what Brandon Sanderson's doing and you think through it. It's the same thing with Facebook now. Like whenever we have a, a post or something that does well on Facebook, it's because we sent people there <laughs> through the newsletter. Why are we even doing this? Through the email newsletter. So you're emailing people to go tell them to look at your Facebook post. It's totally backwards than what it's supposed to be, right? People are hoping oh, if I could just do Facebook, I could get people to sign up for my email newsletter. Facebook doesn't work that way anymore. I'm sad to say it's not your friend. No, it's <laughs> terrible. It really isn't helpful. So we're doing more and more to try to get away from those gatekeepers having as much power as they had to limit our capacity. I think we would have easily crushed that last Kickstarter, it feels like, if that hadn't changed. But it was that was a, just a really good lesson. Like, hey, guess what? You're not in charge of the world. You're in charge of the, the channels that you have, and you're in somebody else's store. They can change the rules on you at any time. And so being overly reliant on them feels like a mistake. And as quote-unquote failures go, $80,000 are not bad. For <laughs> oh, yeah, it was good. I love that experience anyway. That was my, that's one of my favorite books. That I love that book. And that was the first book I wrote after I quit my job to go full-time doing this. And so that was a great experience, but it was a, definitely a marketing wake-up call for us. And one of the things I like about your approach is that you're not approaching this like a self-published author who's thinking, I have to do everything myself. 
you're approaching this like in a true independent publisher, which means I'm building a team. I'm surrounding myself with people who have skills that I don't have that help me only do what I can do. Right. Cause ultimately you're the only one who can write a green ember book. If somebody else were to write the book, even if it's with the same characters, it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't have that SD Smith feel to it, but there's a lot of people who can set up the next print run for the book and, schedule Facebook ads or write the next newsletter. Now that you're selling a million copies, you can't do that on your own and still keep writing books. So what kind of team do you have that you've built around yourself? That's absolutely true. So it was me and Andrew at the beginning, Andrew McKay. He's the publisher. And we did this together sort of part-time at the very beginning. We actually just hired him full-time less than a year ago. When I left my job, I think it was in 2018 or so, My brother, Josiah, who had been helping me here and there at conferences and things, he left his job as well at the same time. So we took this on together, and he had a real big learning curve of, like, how to learn the publishing world. And his brief was to, like, how do I protect Sam? (laughs) Like, how do I do the things that Sam was doing so that he can focus on writing? And he's been great at that. It's just the three of us, really, is our core team. But we've also recently hired part-time a person who works in marketing who helps us with like social media and stuff. It takes more pressure off of me. Her name's Natalie. You can see her on on our videos and things. She's wonderful. She's been so, so helpful and really shares the vision. So we've got a tight little team together. It's really the three of us, the four of us. And then we have another guy that just started working with us as well, consulting named Rick, who's helping us build out a bigger franchise plan for the Green Ember that would involve the, the next stages and of storytelling, film and TV, and more merch than what we're doing right now. So we're we're trying to build a long-term strategy with this little team. But you're exactly right. It's people doing things that I don't do well or that take me a long time to do. When people say, oh, you're like a self-publishing success story, I'm like, "Well, well, kind of. But if you're thinking of like me doing everything, no, that's not for sure not true. Those guys have been absolutely essential. And this isn't to mention like your cover designer and your editor, which I imagine are Additional people you didn't mention, right? Like there's a lot of folks coming behind you. They're not on the payroll every week necessarily. Bring them on on a contract basis. But it wasn't you in Photoshop getting the fonts just right on your book cover. Right? That's not a good use of your time. And it's impossible to do the final edits on your own work. Right? You need that third perspective, fourth perspective, because you know what you meant to say. And you need somebody who doesn't <laughs> to be your editor. And that never goes away. I've talked with authors who sold billions of dollars of the books and they still need an editor. So if, it's, if they do, you do too. And if you're just getting started, you're like, oh, I just need a proofreader. That's all I need. No, you need an editor to do more than just a final proofread and fix. You definitely are exactly right. Hiring editors, multiple editors, because it goes back to that first thing that quality is the best business plan. I think of Zach, uh, he's the cover artist for, for the books as like, that guy just got me the tryout. People will try it out because if it was a crummy looking cover, they, they wouldn't care. So if you could go back in a time machine to yourself as you're first getting started and warn yourself of some big pitfalls ahead. One is don't rely too much on Facebook, especially right before a Kickstarter campaign. But what are some other hard lessons that you learned that you could help people avoid? I think that probably most of my problems have been a result of a mindset problem. So I'm kind of an anxious person in general, introverted, that kind of thing. So I think I've thought of myself in a limited way. I haven't thought, I think particularly early on, it's hard not to, you're very afraid of what kind of feedback you're going to get. And you empower your critics way, way, way too much. 
And because of that whole thing we were talking about earlier about you're just writing for the audience that is supposed to be lined up with your book. You're not writing for the world. And people who tell you, I'm writing the next Harry Potter or I'm writing the next, like, that's just dumb. You're, you're not. Well, who's this book for? It's for everybody. Well, to me, I hear it's for nobody. Even J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter is written for 12-year-old boys. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't write it for everyone. She wrote it for a very specific audience. And it was by thrilling the 12-year-old boys that it spread and spread and spread. And I, I'm a firm believer in that. Absolutely. But that, that particular, like thinking about even particular people, like I'm writing this for them. That's exactly what I did. Is I wrote it for my kids. And that was the ultimate standard. And the fact that other people have enjoyed it is bonus. But I think that's true of art in so many different ways. You hear a song on the radio. It's like about a certain girl. And you just listen to it. And you're like, oh, my goodness, that's how I feel. But it's this dude singing about this girl. And, and you're just like you're just into it. Because I think we, we relate to particularity. We relate to particular things. I think I would be a lot less worried with the benefit of hindsight, about what the critics were saying and about the people who it wasn't for. I was trying to find people who will be coaches, not critics, is really important, that people who are who care about what you're doing have the same goal. That's what you talked about with editors. And I think sometimes even if we're really amateurs, which I've been for sure, we're like offended when somebody's like trying to help us edit our stuff. Like, are you crazy? You're on the same page here trying to do the same thing. And also I'd probably embrace failure a little bit more. Like it wouldn't feel as ultimate. There's so many gifts in failure. There's so many gifts in pain. And I think that's true like in the universe. And it's also true in a writing career. Nothing is given birth to without labor pains. And I feel like that's true of art. Like great stories, I think, come out of great pain often. And I think that the story of you, even as a business person, is is shaped by mistakes. And that if, if you can take a breath and learn as you go and develop a thicker skin, but try to maintain a soft heart, try not to become like a sad or angry person who is just like continually victimized and hurt by what people are saying. And that the tendency then is a compounding or spiraling problem of like, then it's like, oh, it's the publishing industry. They're publishing these dumb books. And oh, did you see that guy? He's books dumb, but he's really popular. Like you'd start getting into this weird comparison game instead of tending your own field and keeping your eyes focused on your audience, be they small or large, thinking of it as a privilege. If a hundred people read your book, like, oh my goodness, like that's a miracle. Most books sell very few copies. Modesty and generosity, hospitality, these are words to hold to heart. And I'm a believer in dreaming big. I think people listen to podcasts like this are like, hey, I'm trying to do stuff here. I'm trying to sell books. Like, I love that. Like, hustle, get after it, go for it. But be realistic a little bit and realize that it's a process. And really, like most things in life, the people who don't quit are the people who succeed because it's so hard. It's such a hard thing to do. It's so you get beat up when you stick your neck out in a world full of flashing swords. You're going to feel some pain, and the critics are just always there because they're frustrated people who didn't succeed or whatever, and they're just like ready to just hurt, hurt, hurt. So just trying to be persistent and humble, modest, generous, take the focus off of yourself as much as possible, and try to see those other people. Rule number one for you, Thomas, what you're what you're telling people like that to me is so powerful because it's. That will help you so much. It's even like if you're an anxious person and you're having, like you're going to a, a social gathering. And if you think about yourself, like, how am I coming off? All, what, how will people think I'm stupid? Oh, I'm not eating this properly. I'm not doing, like if you, you're going to have a miserable time. But if you like see, oh, there's somebody that's struggling over there. They're really nervous. I'm going to go see if I can help them. And you go sit by them. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, it's nice to meet you. What's going on? And you try to alleviate their problems. It lightens your own load. And I think that's true in marketing. It's true in life. 
So I would try to get out of my own head, try to get out of my own way, and just have a generous, less desperate, less scarcity-minded kind of a thing, and just think about love and serve and let that be like the reality of my life. My dad has a saying. He says, success is a poor teacher. And so you're talking about failure and, and not being afraid of it. And there are powerful lessons that failure can teach you. In fact, there are some lessons you can only learn through failure. There's a, there's a strength of character that can only be gained through persisting through failure. Because until you have you know, tasted it and survived, you don't know that you can survive. And this is why people who are called to do very difficult things, special forces, Navy SEALs, firefighters, the training for those jobs involves a lot of failure. There's a, a role in the Navy of um, rescue divers. So they go into a sinking ship and rescue people. Okay, these guys have to be really, really good at swimming. And it's an incredibly dangerous job. And they all drowned in training. You're not allowed to go through training until you've drowned at least once. And they pull you out of the pool and they do the Heimlich maneuver. And so you know how long you can hold your breath because you've drowned. Right? You've tasted the failure. You survived it. And if you didn't quit, I imagine quite a few people, once they get the Heimlich maneuver and they're back to life, they're like, I'm done. <laughs> this seemed like a good idea, but it's not a good idea anymore. But those difficult seasons can grow that strength if you persist in them. And you were talking about judging success. And I think it is really powerful to be thankful for the readers that you have. And I remember I was in a conversation with a best-selling author and an award-winning author, and they were both envious of the other. It's like the, the best-selling author, she was an indie. She hadn't won any awards. She'd made a ton of money. She's very profitable. But she's like, she hadn't won any awards. And she just, she craved that. She needed somebody with an award ceremony to tell her that she was a good author. And on the meanwhile, the award-winning author was like, I need to pay the bills. <laughs> if only I could sell more copies. And they, they were both envious. And the envious was making both of them unhappy, even though they had the supposed source of happiness for the other. And yeah, if you were measuring your success on bestseller lists and acclaim from New York, you know, they don't even know who you are. You, you'd be miserable. But if you're measuring your success based off of the readers that you're loving and you're loving them well and they're responding well and they're enjoying your books, that's all you need. <laughs> be thankful for the re readers that you have and it makes all the difference. I totally agree. It's such a gift. And so much of it is out of our control. There are probably worse writers than me who are more successful. There are definitely better writers than me who are far less successful in a lot of different ways. And that is just how it is in the world. <laughs> and we can't always control all those things. I think we can try to be good stewards of the responsibilities that we have, of the gifts that we're given, and receiving those with some kind of gratitude. No one's entitled to do this for a living, to make a million dollars, to have a bunch of awards. Like, we're not entitled to the attention. Like, to me, this biggest token that I'm going for is the attention of children and families who are reading these stories. Like, that is such a gift to me. I cannot believe that people spend time in this universe that I've created. And that is a, such a gift to me. And honestly, the further I go, the less I crave those other sort of standards of like, oh, yeah, you've sold how many? Or you've, you've had what awards or whatever. And I, it's, you could say, oh, it's easy for you to say because you've sold a lot of books. And that's probably true. But I will just say that if you've had any experience of like you really want something really bad and then you achieve it and then you're like, oh, that wasn't as great as I thought it was. I thought it would, that would be really fulfilling. I just feel like that continues to happen all the way up <laughs> and that where whatever position I'm envying now is not going to satisfy me, that those coins really don't have a lot of value behind them. And so I'm trying to focus in on the things that really do. And you get the letters from kids, if it's 
50,000 or if it's five, that's like gold. A kid saying, this book changed my life. This book helped me with this. I love it. It's so much. I play this in the backyard all the time. There's not an award out there that's better than that for me. And I'm choosing to embrace that. I mean, you could very easily say, no, I really, I need to have a, I don't even know what the awards are for authors, <laughs> Oscar or whatever. But I, I got to have that or I've got to sell, a, you know, 10 million copies or I'm not going to be, I just feel like when I get there, I'm going to feel the exact same way. After a little while, I'm going to be like, wow, that wasn't that great. I think thinking modestly, thinking small in the right way and working hard, hustling, getting after it, going for it. I'm not putting that down, but I just think gratitude hopefully is a cycle that sort of is repeatable and it fuels the best in us as creators, as people who share it. And I think especially if we carry it through into our stories and into our marketing, the way we think about them, these are human beings that have value. And for me, it's easy because it's kids and they've got so many challenges already. Like, man, if I can bring some light into their life, in, into their world, then it's just such a gift. But if we focus on them, it, it tears away the distractions and it gives us some well-needed clarity. One thank you note written in crayon has got to be more valuable than the fanciest award. And if it's not, your priorities are all out of whack. <laughs> it's like, yes, because that because yes. really what a kid writing you a thank you note in crayon and, and mailing it to you for, for me, if and not that I'm a middle grade author, but for me, that would be totally the measure. Before we go, imagine the author, they're just about to finish their first book and they're looking at this task of taking their book and getting it to, into the hands of readers. And it seems like this impenetrable wall that they can't get through. So what encouragement would you have for that author who's facing the marketing mountain? Well, I sympathize because I know what that feels like. And, and I know that it feels like I've just accomplished this big thing. And you have like, congratulations. That's awesome. I don't know if there's anything harder in the world than writing a book. It's well, that's probably nonsense, but it's very difficult. So good job. You made something that's amazing. Hold on to the value of that, the pride, the, the joy that brings you. So great job. And I would just say, maybe take a minute, take a breath and enjoy that, celebrate it. So if you don't get good at that, you probably never will be speaking as someone who is not very good at that. Try to build that habit early on. But I would think about it's a new campaign. You've done the creation and now you're looking at connection. And if you want to live in a fantasy world where you don't have to do anything and somebody else is going to magically come along and pick you and say, hey, you're so great. I'm going to do everything for you. Like, I don't know if that exists in the world anymore. It's almost certainly not you. It's definitely not me. So put on your big boy or girl pants and look at the task of connection and bring that sort of attitude and energy that you brought to solving all those problems. You solved so many problems to finish that book. So now you're looking at this task. And on one hand, it's like, wow, this is challenging. But you can solve all of those problems. And where you're weak, you can get help. It is doable. And there's never been a better time because the world is flat in, in the sense that you can do it. The gatekeepers are down. So that means there's like a billion other people charging through the into the city with you. But the, the re, there are resources there. You, you do have resources, resources like this podcast and others. So you're not alone. You're not the first person to do this. You're not the prototype here. So it's been tested a lot. There's a lot of wisdom out there. I would be careful about being overloaded with a million different inputs. I like that, that Thomas, you said you had 10 
commandments. Like that's what you, you need. Like I'm going to do these very few things and I'm going to crush it at it. Like I'm going to make a really clean website. I'm going to start a newsletter. I'm not going to write the very best newsletter in the history of the world every day right now. No, I'm going to do one once a week. It's going to be generous. It's going to be kind. I'm going to invite people to do this. I'm going to start with my friends. It's doable. It is doable. And maybe you're an introvert. You might be afraid. That's okay. It's okay to be afraid. Like your character's afraid in the story right before they go into the big fight. Like it's okay to be afraid. Think of yourself. You are a character in a story. And and this is part of that story. Part of that story is your generosity in connecting your work with others. And I would say if you're proud of that book, then back yourself. Then stand up and back yourself. You've got to be able to say, I do think this is valuable. I do think this is worth sharing. And then you got to take the steps to do it. And it's okay that they're baby steps. Like you don't have to do it all at once. Like do one recover, do two. You will get better. You will get a thicker skin. You will get more and more effective. I firmly believe that if you just keep going and you don't quit, you will succeed. At it. it is doable. You will find an audience. SD Smith, thank you so much for coming on the show. SDSmith.com is the website. I encourage you to buy his first book of the Green Ember series. I think it'll blow you away if there's a middle schooler in your life. I think they'll enjoy it. But I will say a lot of adults read and enjoy the book as well. We'll have the link to the book on Amazon, though. I know a lot of you want to do the one-click checkout. But uh, Sam, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. My pleasure, Thomas. It has been a delight. And good luck to everyone out there. A quick personal update. I'm sorry we haven't had an episode in the last few weeks. I've been hard at work teaching the 2022 book launch blueprint and just spread too thin. So, there likely won't be an episode next week because the blueprint is still ongoing. But starting two weeks from now, we should be back to our regularly scheduled weekly rhythm. And I will say, if you're wanting more episodes of Novel Marketing, you should consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Each month, there is a special patrons-only episode where I answer your questions. So it's a lot of fun. It's a great Bonus episode is my way of saying thank you to the people who help make this podcast possible. Patrons also receive hundreds of dollars worth of exclusive discounts, and at higher levels, they even get access to the podcast host directory and more. So you can help yourself and help the show by becoming a patron today. You can learn more at authormedia.com slash patron. Speaking of patrons, our featured patron today is Jonathan Schruger author of Shades of Black in Darkness Cast. A young swordsman desperate to save his people turns to the only instructor he can find, the bitter champion of the everlasting dark. They know the light best who first know the dark. Uh, and I will say I've actually read this book, and I would say it's Star Wars meets Skyrim with one of the most interesting villains you'll find outside of a DC comic book. So if that sounds like your kind of story... I recommend that you check out Shades of Black and Darkness Cast. And if you would like to become a patron like Jonathan Schruger, you can do it at authormedia.com slash patron. And if you can't afford to become a patron, but you still want to help the show, you can. Just leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Your five-star reviews help other people find the show. They also brighten my day just a little bit. <laughs> the Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our producer is Lori Christine. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt, and the blog post version was crafted by Shauna Lettler. To read that blog post version of this episode, visit authormedia.com slash 322. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.